ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chicky Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chicky Fitzgerald. It is a fabulous day in Tampa, Florida. This is the kind of day that uh, makes people move to Florida. Uh, it is just uh, amazingly sunny, which you know is not unusual for Florida, but we have almost no humidity, so you can actually have the windows open. So I am, I am excited about our show today. Uh, this is a topic that is very, very close to my heart. Uh, as most of you know, we have recently rebranded our show as The Game Changer, and uh, it's really apropos that we have got Braden Kelly with us today because he has written a book called Charting Change, a visual tool stick for making change stick. Braden, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chicky. Thank you for having me. Well, it is my pleasure, and you know, I'm I'm just so excited about this particular topic because uh, you know I've spent the last 20 years as a strategic consultant, and quite often going in and helping people with this, this very topic of of how do you actually chart out change and then actually do it, measure it, and make it stick. So I, I love books that have a a physical part of them, uh, uh, something that you can actually visualize and, and use as a roadmap, and that is exactly what you've done. But before we jump into the book, Braden, can you tell our guests a little bit about you? Sure, happy to do that. So I have had the blessing in my life to live and work in England, Germany, and the United States. I live in Seattle, Washington now. I'm the author of two books, uh, the newest one being Charting Change, but before that I wrote another book called Stoking Your Innovation Bonfire, which mm. was quite popular, that focuses on how do you really go about attacking the barriers to innovation and knock them down and, and build a culture of continuous innovation. And so that book's done quite well, and that's given me the opportunity to write a second book, which... I sort of arrived here because change is, um, you know, innovation just forces change. That, that's the best way to put it. And so uh, in addition to, to living and working around the world along the way, I had the opportunity to earn an MBA at London Business School. And I've had the opportunity to work with clients from around the world and deliver keynote speeches and workshops on the topics of innovation, change, and digital transformation globally as well. And so... So I just really love trying to take insights and make them more accessible for people and to identify areas where there's a little too much complexity in the rhetoric and, and try right. to cut through it and, and build some, some tools and some, some readings that people can hopefully use to get to the insights quickly and give people more insights uh, per chapter than, than a lot of other authors. Right. And, Braden, so did you come right out of London Business School uh, and begin consulting others, or did you have a, a corporate career portion, uh, you know, that gave you some practical experience? So before my MBA, I used to do workflow and process consulting in the technology industry, helping people use technology to solve business problems. And then after the MBA, I went right into working with people in an advisory capacity, uh, started working with a company that became part of homeaway.com, um, working oh, really? on marketing strategy, building a, 
a social and a content marketing strategy before those were really terms that, that people used and concepts. Oh, that wow. Were well, I don't know if you know that my background is I've spent the last 20 years consulting in the travel space about using technology uh, you know, to help marry buyers and sellers and all different kinds, and I've absolutely watched what Home Away has been doing. So that that's a really interesting intersection between us. <laughs> that's funny. Well, very good. Well, I, you know, I actually love the title of your last book. We could probably spend an hour on talking about that. But assuming that you have stoked your innovation bonfire and you know that you want to make a significant change, and and this book isn't talking about incremental change, right? Because incremental change is, is kind of what we all do. It's the safe bet. It's looking at this and tweaking that. This isn't about tweaking. Charting change is really designed to help people both with what I like to call capital C changes and little c changes both. So if you think about sort of the capital C changes, things like digital transformations, things like uh, introducing innovations into the marketplace and developing them, um, you know, it's it's very good for that and it was designed with that in mind. But what I found as I went along is that it's also the, the tools and the frameworks that are included in the change finding toolkit are also well adapted to what I like to call little c change efforts, which if you think about it, includes projects. And if you think about that a little bit further, every project changes something. And so uh, one of the things that I do in the book is turn the idea around the intersection between change management and project management on its head. And instead, of saying, like most people, that change management is a subset of project management. I believe firmly that instead project management is a subset of change management. And right, that right. As, you, as you look at attacking what your organization wants to do to continue to exist, um, it starts with, you know, of course, things like a, a vision and a mission and a strategy and goals. Uh, and from there, you know, it's identifying the capabilities that you need to execute on your strategy to continue to be successful in your industry or become successful in your industry. And, and from that, there's obviously going to be a whole series of changes that you need to embark on in order to achieve your strategy. And so that's why I put change management and change leadership and change planning all above project planning, project management, and project leadership. Right, right. And I love the fact that you start Chapter 1 with a quote by yourself. <laughs> I think that's actually brilliant um, because, you know, as you read books, and a lot of authors use that mechanism of, of finding an inspirational quote, uh, but I think it's really bold for you to make that your own quote. And that quote is, does the change you're proposing inspire fear or curiosity? Fear steals energy from change and curiosity fuels it. Um, that, first of all, that, that quote is just so true. And this first chapter is called Changing Change. So we've all been living with change really since the day we were born. And some of us it, embrace it more wholeheartedly. Others fear it. I mean, you can take a look at people who've had the same hairstyle, you know, for 20 years. And, and others who every time you see them, you know, maybe the color even changes, right? So, so here we are at, at a time when the pace of change is unlike 
anything we have ever seen. And in fact, our show last week um, started off talking about the pace of change and, and how that impacts our business. So, so talk to us a little bit about the pace of change and, and how we need to really change our view on change. Sure, sure. So, yeah, so at the beginning of each chapter, I do have a quote, and you have to attribute them to someone. So, <laughs> um, I love it. So I'm, the, I'm teasing you a little bit, but I do love that. <laughs> no, I know, and and some of the quotes are from me, and some are from others that I respect, and and I was actually quite proud of that particular quote because I think it helps to highlight a key concept that is good to keep in mind, and that's trying to track the mindset that people have in relation to the change that you're trying to achieve. And, and from that point, it can really help you better craft the, the, the communications and the effort that you want to, to put against helping pe people understand how the change is both going to be relevant but also positively Im impactful in their, in their lives and their experience within the organization. But as we look at the accelerating pace of change, uh, in the book, I, I use a graph that uh, Innosite put together, and and it really highlights how quickly and both the organizations are being created and and dying at the same time. And there's several reasons for that, and several things that people need to be cognizant of as they move forward. Um, the one, first thing that people need to be cognizant of as they move forward is trying to make sure that they don't develop any change gaps, that their their pace of internal change doesn't become slower than the pace of external change around them. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and as people look at trying to, to cope with the accelerating pace of change, I think it's also important to understand that part of the reason that that's occurring is that customers' expectations are changing faster than ever before. Um, you know, if we have a, a service experience with company A that we're delighted with and you know we pretty much assume every other company is doing it that way and if they're not then you know we become very dissatisfied and, and very impatient for them to start doing it that way. Um, we sort of assume that if a particular technology is available and somebody's using it to the best possible ends to delight their customers that everybody's doing that and of course that's not the case and of course that puts organizations that are in a huge technical debt uh, spot that they have to dig out from in order to stay at the, the forefront of their industry. Right. Uh, and, and so it's no longer enough to try to be best in class. You have to constantly be trying to strive to be world class. Right. Um, because every positive that somebody sees in any particular industry suddenly becomes an expectation in yours. And that's I think that's probably the thing that's the biggest new thing and not something that people are talking about enough and, and not something that people are planning for enough. Well, one of the things that you include in your book, and, and certainly it is in, uh, embedded right in the title, is this visual toolkit. And, and you have adopted uh, something called the Change Planning Canvas. And uh, for those who have been involved in business planning you know, in the last couple of years, you know that the, the business plan canvas has kind of replaced the 150-page narrative business plan. And the change planning canvas seems to accomplish the same thing for attacking uh, the change that's necessary. And so, you know, the, the components of this change planning canvas seem to be a critical part of getting people to that place of thinking 
properly uh, about change. Do you want to talk about that a little bit before we dive into the rest of the book? Sure. So, so the genesis for the change planning canvas is really as I started to do my research for the book and read book after book after book, what it really jumped out at me is just how text intensive uh, all the all the books are out there and how, you know, there's a lot of great theories out there and and some good thinking, um, but it it doesn't really help you take that next step. So what people are left with is are some good ideas around change leadership, but there's a big gap around change planning uh, and change management uh, in the literature and uh, also tools to, to help people get started. So the way that a lot of people start a change process or a change program is usually by staring at a blank Microsoft Word document. You know, it might be a, a project charter template or, right, or, or right. some other kind of document. Uh, and it's often as a result of that kind of document ends up with one person sitting at their desk trying to take the first stab at it and then maybe starting to talk with others about it. And it's very intimidating, it's very scary, and it's probably a, a great part of the reason that 70% of change efforts fail because uh, that, that upfront part, that planning part, which is so crucial, is so you know, overwhelming and scary for people. And so what the Change Planning Toolkit attempts to do and what the Change Planning Canvas attempts to do in particular is to make change less overwhelming and, and really more collaborative, more visual, and more human, and help people literally get all on the same page for change. And so from teaching workshops around the world um, to help people understand how to use the business model canvas and, and from looking at other tools that, that have emerged in the last few years, the sort of visual and more visual and more collaborative type of approach is starting to catch on and there's a, there's a reason for that. And mm -hmm. so the change planning canvas was created to help give people uh, an anchor point to start the conversations that they need to have to right. surface the, the, the assumptions that people are making, uh, try to start identifying the people that can help them in their change initiative, the people that are most likely to resist, uh, the people that it's going to affect and those that it's potentially not going to affect, and um, really uh, it's designed to be used in a team approach to attacking your your change problem uh, and get the right people in the right room at the with the right conversations to right. flesh out the, the things that you'd rather find out early on rather than tripping over them or being blown up by them later on <laughs> in, in the project. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Braden, um, in my own career, I spent the first 20 years of my career in corporate life. So, you know, unlike you of, of coming out of uh, academia, right, and, and having uh, the, the theoretical piece that you were able to layer on top of the consulting that you had already done before you went in to get your business degree, um, I'm, I'm actually the, the uh, antithesis for, for you because I was a college dropout. And uh, but was very very successful in my business career, and you know I mean it was just God's gift uh, to me to have all of the right skills that were able to survive not being honed in an academic environment. Um, but I one of the things that blew me away, and in fact one of the reasons why I had to escape corporate life, was because I could not believe how long it took to plan. 
right? Mm. And and I worked uh, for ten years for American Airlines uh, in the Sabre Group, which you know was the technology mm-hmm. arm that that provided technology to the rest of the industry. And you know I will bet that we spent a third of our year planning. And and so when I went out and started to consult, I you know one of the products that I uh, branded was you know a, a rapid strategy process. And, you know, as I look at your framework, really we were codifying a lot of the things that, that you have, have put in the book. So, you know, I would love to, uh, to kind of uh, match notes uh, later on after the interview because uh, it's been a really, really interesting ride the last 20 years of, of trying to help accelerate that change planning. So how long should planning change take? Well, I think it all depends on what kind of change you're you're trying to to make, but typically I would say that you should be able to put together a, a change planning canvas in two to three days. Uh, and that's by making sure that you've done your, your pre-work and that you've identified the right people to invite to the the session or the off-site and, and um, so that you have the right perspectives represented and you can do the best job possible in having those those difficult conversations up front and and to identify those those barriers up front and and um uh, to identify the people that can help help you build out uh your more detailed execution plan as you move forward out of your your change planning session so so i I think that it, you should be able to achieve the the initial part in two to two to three days. Great, great. Well, that that's uh, right in line with what, what my goal was in, in our approach. You know, I know that as a part of writing this book, you uh, had some case studies that, that you wanted to bring forward. And, and the first one uh, was about challenging top-down change. And I certainly have seen, you know, in my 20-year consulting career both, where the at the top they recognize they need change or the change comes because of a merger or acquisition and they've got to get a handle on how do you change moving forward, whether it's brand or product or approach. Um, and and when when that comes from the top down there there's obviously some resistance that comes from the bottom and likewise when the when from the bottom up they know that they need change quite often there there is uh no answer at the top uh to acknowledge that change is actually necessary and so chapter 3 of the book it really focuses on understanding your current state because until you acknowledge where you are you can't acknowledge that you need change right so talk to us a little bit about NHS and that case case study that you bring uh, into the book? Sure. So so one of the interesting things that the, the NHS did, and, and for those out there that aren't familiar with what the NHS is, which is, you know, that's 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 fine. That's probably a lot of people, actually, because what yeah, it is is the, <laughs> <laughs> is the National Health Service of the, the United Kingdom. So uh, in the United Kingdom, they have socialized medicine for, for most of your healthcare needs, and what that means is the things that you need you get from the government, and the things that you want usually you have to pay for yourself, uh, unless you want to wait. And I lived there for three years, and and actually found that to be a pretty good system. And what the reason why I say that is the things that you need usually got, and usually got them very efficiently. Uh, and so I spent less time waiting in the emergency room. Than, than I do here, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and it's not a perfect system, but at least the basics for people are taken care of. But what they've done is they have a network of thousands of practitioners all around the country. And what they decided to do is leverage some of the methods from the innovation space, uh, particularly crowdsourcing and, and open innovation, to uh, in attack change and look for new ideas about how the National Health Service could change itself from within. And so they reached out all across the organization and rather than trying to come up with a top-down improvement plan, they reached all the way down to the bottom of the organization to look for ideas on how the organization could become more efficient, more effective, and then took all those ideas in and, and categorized them and bubbled up into a few key areas that they wanted to focus on, you know, including barriers and building blocks and, and solutions and and created a, a set of themes that they wanted to attack, things like seeing the bigger picture and nurturing our people and fostering an open culture, things that they felt that based on all of the input that the staff gave from around the country that could give them and the leadership some, some go-dos in terms of what they could do to potentially start to resolve some of the concerns that people had across the organization. And what I like to say in the innovation space is that anytime you start asking people for information, you better be ready to do something with it. Otherwise, you're going to destroy trust and, and right. prevent the, the initiative from ever being successful or ever having the opportunity to do it again successfully. And so... Uh, what they did was a very brave thing, but they also stood ready to try to do something about it. And so I think that's an important thing to, to keep in mind is that as you start to enlist others in your effort, you need to make sure that you have your listening ears on and are willing to do something with it. Um, I'm reading a, a book right now called People Before Things from Chris Lapping, who used to be the chief innovation, I mean not chief innovation, chief information officer at Red Robin. And, and one of the things that he highlights in the book is that uh, when they brought their executives together every year to discuss what was going right and wrong in their restaurants, uh, several years in a row people mentioned communications. And the first couple of years, the organization responded by trying to put together better emails and better newsletters, and, and then it kind of struck him after two or three years as communications kept being mentioned that what the, the restaurant manager is really saying is that you're not listening to us. Right. <laughs> not, not that you're not telling us enough things or sending us enough information. It's that when we tell you things, we don't feel like they're heard, understood, and acted upon. Uh, and so the broadcast was going fine, but the reception uh, of information coming back is where the, the problem actually was. And right. So, so when people use language, you almost have to listen extra hard and try to look at the different ways that that language could be used or, or what people are trying to say with that language. So. Well, and, you know, I had that same exact experience in, in one of my major roles, and it wasn't as a consultant. It was actually when I was inside uh, a corporation, and we did a, a very long process of, of trying to figure out where the gaps were between sales and service. You know, sales making promises, and or that's how the service department saw it, and then the service department not being able to uh, – 
uh, you know, to live up to those promises. And at the end of that engagement, and I'm sure it was a very expensive consulting engagement. We, you know, we had people, uh, you know, coming in and doing all kinds of interviews. But at the end of the day, what what we, the message we had to take back to leadership was that we were like a fine bottle of champagne, and that the leadership team, and in particular the CEO, was like the cork. And until that cork could be removed to allow the bottle of champagne, you know, really to reach its highest mm-hmm. potential, which is to be consumed, right? Um, right? You know, and what a hard message that was to deliver. Because again, you're talking about not only understanding the current state, but the next chapter of your book talks about exploring the readiness for change and, and the transition that has to happen. And, you know, if leadership hasn't been able to effectively look at themselves, um, you know, then it's really, really hard to be ready for that change. I want to jump ahead, though, um, to Chapter 5, which talks about envisioning your desired state. And I would say that this is probably my favorite part of of the change process. And, um, you know, I, I know a lot of, of folks who do one-on-one coaching with individuals, you know, start with creating a, a vision board, Right, and this isn't used as much in corporate life because it maybe is a little bit too touchy feely for that. But but it really is what we do when we try to figure out where we want to be, right? So so talk to me a little bit about the envisioning the desired state. And I know you you showcased uh, some some perspectives of Seth and is it Kahan or Kahan? I don't know how to pronounce his last name. <laughs> um, I do not want to get it wrong either. Okay, well, well, we'll just we'll we'll tell them that they need to actually buy the book because I love the way that you have stated this about generating dramatic surges of progress, and this this goes back to my original observation that really the people who are going to buy this book aren't typically going to be the people who are just like plotting along with incremental change, and and yes, your methods can help them with that, but it's really the people who want that dramatic surge of progress that this book is designed for, I think. You know, I mean, that's my, my external observation, but talk to us about that visioning process. Sure. So uh, in the book and in the toolkit, it's a key part of the overall potential success for for the use of the toolkit. And so one of the things that I do in the in envisioning the desired state is provide people with a very simple uh, tool for drawing. And because I think that it's good to talk about things, but it's also good to give people the, the opportunity to draw what the, the future state might look like. And part of the reason is that you know some people are just more visual than others, and yes. and can get their their ideas out better with pictures than with words. Um, but also, as you engage in that drawing process, even if you're not the the best of artists like like myself, then um, you may find that as you start to draw the desired state and put some some pictures to what you've been thinking in your head that you might start to identify things that you feel differently about in the current state. Uh, So as part of the process, you start to talk about the current state, and then you start to talk about the desired state. Um, But as you start to draw the desired state, you may find that the things that you said about the current state have changed a little bit. Uh, So part of the process is then to revisit what you've done around the current state 
and see if you want to make any modifications after everybody's done their, their individual work around the desired state and started to share it. Uh, and there's also, you know, highlighting of some simple tools like start, stop, and continue in there. But there's also a lot of other questions that people can ask themselves around, you know, what, why now is the time for change and, and who the main proponents are and, and where the change is most likely to take place and, and some other questions like that that I think that are very important that people need to ask themselves um, because they'll surface different things and different assumptions about what will make the, the change possible. And so the picturing of the desired state is not just about creating an ideal picture of where you'd like to go, but as you as you start to envision it, you, you should hopefully start to identify some of the things that you need to do along the way to make it happen. Right, right. Well, and then you go on to talk about picking the right target for your change effort, the benefits of change, the people side of change. Um, I'd like to focus on uh, what you uh, hone in on on Chapter 9, about the barriers and obstacles to change. And it's interesting because Matthew May is is the individual that, that you feature in this chapter, and he, I actually interviewed him years ago. Like he was one of my first interviews when I launched this show back in, I think, two, 2007 or 2008. Uh, but the, the statement here is that you have to reverse engineer your strategy by asking what must be true. Yes, yes, and that's, a, I think, a very important concept is that as you start to draw this desired state and picture where you want to go and start to build a strategy for where you want to go, um, asking what must be true helps to really surface those assumptions. Uh, and help to identify some of the barriers that will stand in the way of you getting there. And oftentimes we don't ask that question of what must be true enough in, a, in, in order for us to achieve the success that we want to have. And so, so I think that that's an important point that, that Matt makes there. Excellent. So as, as you move on through the other components, um, <laughs> The, the obvious has to come out, <coughs> excuse me, which is not everything about change is wonderful. <laughs> yes, and, and I think that that's sometimes something that gets overlooked. Um, most of the time we assume that change is going to be wonderful, and we forget to acknowledge the fact that there are people that are going to be uh, affected by the change in potentially negative ways. and. Uh, so we need to look at the risks and we ne need to look at the potential negative outcomes and, and make mitigation plans around them. And it could be something as, as simple as the fact that even with a positive change that somebody is going to, to lose their mastery or their, their position right. as an expert uh, within the ecosystem. And uh, that is an important thing to acknowledge and to understand because that person may fight against you because they don't want to lose that position as an expert. Um, but you can try to mitigate that in several ways, including trying to pull that person in early in the process and potentially even giving them the opportunity to become an expert in the in the new way. Uh, right. And so I think that there's a, a lot of opportunity in looking at what, the potential negative outcomes are to a change and not assuming that everything's going to be rosy. Right. Well, it's interesting because uh, 
two of my guests over the last month have been individuals who were talking about actually the benefit of of learning versus mastery. And and one of them uh, was the author of the book called Rookie Smarts, which you might want to uh, get a copy of that because <laughs> her her premise is that actually – you're much more effective when, when you're in that rookie mode of not being the expert and, and that mm-hmm. we fall into a level of complacency as experts in, in our given field. Um, so, you know, I, I think that could really boost, um, you know, this particular premise uh, that giving people opportunity, whereas they see it, it as being something that is being torn away from them. Um, chapter 11, I, I, I think, is is – uh, again, kind of an obvious part of this from those who come from a project planning uh, perspective and, and understanding that uh, whether project planning drives change or change drives project planning, as you were saying in the beginning, that breaking it down into manageable components is, is really what you have to do with change um, because it can be overwhelming. And, and so after you've broken it down, Chapter 12 says, well, now what? And And so – once you have planned for change and broken it down and understood the resources that that are required, then you've got to brace for this next wave of change. Yes, definitely. And that's where Beth Montag Schmaltz jumps in and, and provides her guest expert piece on bracing for the next wave of change and really has a lot of great content around uh, change readiness and change saturation. And, you know, in, in my part leading up to that, one of the the key things that, that I like to highlight is uh, people need to understand the difference between the, the resources that they need to achieve the change and the resources that they control. And people need to understand where the organization and where the individuals are in terms of change saturation because you may correctly identify the resources that you need, uh, and you may even control them, but they may not have time to work on what you <laughs> right, need Right, they done. still have day jobs. <laughs> yes, or they may be engaged on, a, on another change initiative. And, and so oftentimes what organizations need to do is to look at all the different initiatives in their, their organization and, and the individuals that they need to pull into their, their change, change plan and uh, see what their their current uh, potential availability is, you know, how, what percentage of their time can they allocate to this effort and what percentage do you need uh, to be successful? And if there's a gap, what's your plan for trying to close that gap? Uh, and oftentimes what we see is that an organization may be at a point of saturation around change and not able to take on your initiative right now, or maybe you're choosing the wrong time of year to try to undertake it. Right. Um, or what organizations tend to be not very um, forthcoming or desire, desirous to do is to staff extra people during uh, an initiative. Right, so, right. Uh, you know, if you're going to be inflicting a lot of change on, say, the customer service organization where they're going to be having to, to learn a bunch of new tools and a bunch of new processes and things like that, oftentimes the organization, for budget reasons, isn't willing to bring on extra staff during that time so that the people that might normally be 100% uh, available to customers uh, might suddenly only be 50% available to customers and and you need to to bring in more staff. Uh, And if you don't do that, 
you may find that your change effort fails, um, and if you do, you, you have extra costs. And, and right. so you need to understand that trade-off, and in many cases, you need to be ready to make that investment if you uh, feel that the, the payoff is going to be great enough from undertaking the change. Well, and I think it's interesting that the next chapter, which talks about building the case for change, you, you might think that this should have been one of the first chapters. But mm -hmm. having having lived through helping many organizations with change, selling change can't actually happen until you know what the requirements are. And and so selling change and the next chapter on communicating change and then the, the uh, chapter just after that about leading change, to me these all three fit together because part of the change management process has to be coming up with what that story is. And I love how you talk in Chapter 14 uh, about storytelling, right? And you, and you, you actually take it one step further and, and uh, have branded it as story doing, right? And, and how that has to be wrapped around how you achieve the organizational change that is often necessary uh, to back up a change plan. So, so uh, share a little bit about that perspective with us. Sure. So, so I think that we don't spend enough time overall in business around storytelling, and I think that uh, there are roles within an organization that often don't exist that we should really start to consider having in organizations. People like business storytellers, people like business artists within the organization to help visualize and help tell the story of what it is we're trying to achieve, what it is we're trying to make possible for customers what it is that we're trying to change within the organization and why. And and so I think that there's a real need to do more of that. And I think that communications is uh, an underserved area within an organization and that we don't spend enough time on, on communication skills training for people within an organization. And that's not just how people talk, but it's more about how they, they visualize what they're trying to achieve. And... And so, so I do spend a bit of time around communicating change and also trying to help people understand that what we need to do is basically bring more of a marketing perspective to our internal change efforts and segment our audience, uh, craft our messages very carefully, and right. t target the right message at the right audience using the right channel. And, and then in, in the, the guest expert section from Ty Montague and Rosemary Ryan, of co-collective, you know, they they bring in um, some some great great words around their story doing uh, framework, and you know, it's really sort of showing that it's not just so much about telling your story, but living your story and sharing what it is that you're doing, and not so much just you know trying to to say great things. Right, right. And and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the role of successful leaders in championing, easy for me to say, championing <laughs> change. That's a mouthful. Uh, because if, if indeed, as, as you implied, an organization is already saturated with change, they've gone from, uh, you know, perhaps they have seen it as kind of today's fad 
in in changing and whether they went through you know all of the different movements of the last you know three decades in in retooling their organizations and and is this just another one of those how do leaders actually get ahead of that and be the champion of change and really uh, take that story and make it real uh, at the departmental level, which is where this actually has to happen. Sure. So the one thing that I like to say is that people always have to, to identify and sell the problem before they try to sell the change. And I think oftentimes people get really excited about the change that they want to make, and then they get out there and they start talking about it, and they don't, you know, fully explain to people, you know, what the problem is and, and why the, the status quo isn't sufficient to, to either meet the needs of customers or the needs of employees or, or whichever group that you're trying to influence with your, your change effort. And so I think the role of the leader is first to to really strongly understand the status quo and then identify and sell the problem before they start going out there and, and championing, the, championing the change. And so another area where leaders often fall down and where you know management teams typically fall down and leads me to an, another, <laughs> another one of my quotes is that most management teams are not really teams at all because they won't sacrifice resources to help the team succeed. Only strong leaders can facilitate this level of cooperation. And the reason why this is one of the, the highlighted quotes in the book is because of the fact that for most change efforts to succeed, people are going to have to give up something. They're going to have to give up resources. They're going to have to uh, allocate time of their people. They might have to kick in some of their budget to make something happen. You know, there's always sacrifice that needs to be made along the way to make anything meaningful happen. And um, the truth is that most management teams aren't willing to make those sacrifices. And, and as a result, uh, a lot of change initiatives fall short of their objectives. And so if the team wants to succeed, then the team has to work together. The team has to contribute the resources that are necessary to make the project and the change effort move forward to successful conclusion. And, and so the, a strong leader with a clear vision of what the problem is, a clear story around uh, why the undertaking is happening, and a very clear process and visualization of what the change is going to look like, what the process is going to look like, what's going to be achieved, what's going to be done at the end, and what's going to be done in the future is is key to success. And so you need the right change leader with the right mentality and mindset in order to, to be successful and that can help create the cooperation and, and the shared sacrifice necessary to, to move things forward. Right. And then in Chapter 16, we, we circle back to the, the topic of your first book, right? Innovation is all about change. And, you know, it, it's interesting because innovation is is very very different than change right innovation is deciding that the only way to get ahead is not to embrace the status quo uh, to stay ahead of that curve of where uh, that external pressure that you referred to earlier which is you know competition or the economy um, you know or, or technological change itself right that the only way to survive is innovation and Further, I think it also implies that this 
has to be baked into the culture, right? That you have to create a cultural environment that uh, dreaming is good, right? And and you talk about in the case study in this section, don't dream alone, right? You've got to create this grassroots innovation um, that is baked into who you are as a company, whether you're a Fortune 500 or you're you're a startup. Yes, definitely. And and Bob X is one of my my favorite corporate innovators out there, and he's got a great case study from his time at Qualcomm and how from nothing he built a grassroots innovation program uh, with people all around the world, creating patentable ideas that drove real business results for the company and. You know, the genesis for this book was the fact that innovation is all about change. And so I felt like I needed to go further in helping people make change happen. And and so, um, you know, w what you really see is that innovation transforms the useful seeds of invention into widely adopted solutions valued above every existing alternative. And as you make that happen, change is going to occur. And that change is going to be inflicted upon the organization. It's going to be inflicted upon the ecosystem around the organization. So just as an example, when Apple decided to, to create consumer electronics, things like the iPod and the iPhone and, and other things, that was very different from the, the computers that they were creating at the time. And so as a result, that meant that they needed to go out and hire new people. That means they needed to learn about manufacturing things at a much higher quantity while still maintaining the quality that they they like to have, uh, that they were going to have to deepen their engagement with different distribution channels, potentially engage with new government entities around regulation that they might not have been already dealing with. So there's this, this whole host of things that are happening inside and outside the organization just, just from one innovation that they wanted to bring to market, uh, you know, if we just focus, say, on the iPod. And so, so innovation is all about change, and, and as you try to innovate, you're going to have to change uh, and kick off a lot of different change efforts within your organization to realize that innovation. Uh, and, and then, you know, the, the way that you'll want to, to move is from having a culture where people run from change to a people to a culture where people run towards change right. and where you, you move from that fear towards excitement and where the status quo becomes an expectation of change and people almost get more agitated when things aren't changing. Um, and so that's that's kind of over time what you want to have is a, is a culture of continuous innovation and a culture of continuous change where your time to transform is uh, becoming more rapid and your organizational agility as a result is increasing so that as things change in the marketplace around you, you're more able to, to respond quickly because what typically kills off organizations is they, you know, if you imagine that the customer is a target uh, that an airplane is trying to, or a helicopter is trying to hover over, uh, the, the customer keeps moving, that target keeps moving and organizations die when they move too far away from that target. Right. And and so that's that's our goal as as organizations is to constantly be trying to understand where the target is moving and and it doesn't make it easier that the target's moving at night and it's dark outside. <laughs> right. Right. 
So in, in Chapter 17, you circle back uh, to really the nuts and bolts of, of change, which is the whole project and portfolio management process. And uh, again, you, you implied by your statements earlier that uh, companies perhaps have taken the wrong approach in the past of, of looking at project and portfolio management as the thing, and change was the result, as opposed to change really being the catalyst. And, and so here you tell a story about um, companies that are discovering new pathways for, for digital transformation and using technology um, you know, as, as the catalyst for change. So, so where does this all um, come together, and, and, and how do companies get their arms around the actual nuts and bolts of what has to be done but still keep the, the goal in mind? Well, I think it starts by architecting the organization in the right way. And so as kind of as we discussed a little bit earlier, it all starts with the the strategy and the strategy being informed by the changes in the marketplace and the changes in customer behavior. Uh, and from that, you determine the architecture that you need to have for your business, the, the portfolio of change initiatives that you need to have in order to achieve your strategy, and then from there you, you really start to drive down into the, the innovation efforts of the organization, the operations, and then the whole change planning and execution uh, across the organization. And and so if, if you don't build your organization in the right way, and if you don't tr start to transform your organization to become more digital, digitally focused and utilizing the, the latest technologies to maintain the, the best possible customer experience possible, uh, then you're going to be left either left behind by your existing competitors that do or disrupted by a digital native company that comes in utilizing all the latest technology and comes in with that mindset of a digital native and um, you know, just takes takes your market share by serving your customers in a better way, more efficiently, uh, with a, a more I ideal product or service. Right. So, Brayden, what's the future of change? Well, I think the future of change is kind of what we were talking about, which is you know the organizations that start to transform themselves to uh, be more digitally centric that transform themselves towards being capable of continuous change and continuous innovation that uh, increase their organizational agility so that as things change around them, they're more able to quickly react and um, are able to build and maintain the trust within their, their employee base to enable them to uh, run towards change rather than away from it. And as a result, continue to delight their customers or delight their constituents if they're a government entity or delight their donors if they're a, a charity so that they continue to maintain strong, healthy, long-term relationships with those people uh, and that give them the, the not only the permission to continue to, to innovate and deliver great value to that to them but also to exist as an, as an organization. And so um, anybody that's part of any kind of organization doesn't want that organization to, to go away, uh, even if they don't believe in the mission of the organization, they still want a job at least. But hopefully uh, more and more organizations will have a very clear mission, have a very clear vision for where they want to go, something that resonates with the employees or uh, volunteers that are working with them, 
and so that those people can passionately work together to, to sustain that organization and help it remain vibrant and help it deliver as much value as possible to the people that they serve, whether right. those are customers, constituents, or um, donors and, and uh, beneficiaries. Well, Brayden, you have given us uh, just an incredible uh, view of charting change, uh, both the book and the process. And uh, as I had mentioned uh, earlier, this book is just jam-packed with with real tools that you can use uh, to make changes stick within your organization. But, Brayden, if, if they buy your book and they read it and they really embrace it, but they really can't do this on their own, how can they get in touch with you? <laughs> <laughs> so I have a website, BradenKelly.com, nice and simple. Uh, if you go to charting-change.com, you'll land on the page that, that highlights the, the toolkit and the book. Uh, everybody that buys a copy of the book with your proof of purchase will get you access to 26 of the 50 tools from the change planning toolkit, including the change planning canvas. And then there's very affordable uh, options for site licenses and and uh, full access licenses to the other tools um, that aren't included in the basic license, which comes with the book. Um, but again, right, the but basic you also can come and speak to their organization, and and you can also come in with your facilitated planning sessions. Correct? Yes. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, I do keynotes around the world and workshops, and happy to come help people understand how to use the toolkit, and uh, eventually we're hoping to also make e-learning available as, as another option as well for people that uh, either can't come to a public session or can't organize a private session. Excellent. And I see on your site they can also follow you on LinkedIn and Twitter and, and uh, look at your, your various YouTubes. So, Brayden, thank you so, so much uh, for being with us. The book that we've been talking about today is called Charting Change, a visual toolkit for making changes stick. The author is Braden Kelly. And uh, as he mentioned, you can reach him at bradenkelly.com. And Braden, I just uh, wish you a wonderful weekend, and it sounds like your future is already bright. So uh, I, I wish you the greatest success, and uh, hopefully you will have a wonderful weekend in the short term. Well, thank you very much, Chicky, and thank you for having me on your show, and thanks for all the great work that you do and bringing lots of different voices to the audience that you reach. <laughs> well, thank you so much. For those of you who'd like to learn more about uh, our organization, you can go to solutions.com. And also executivegirlfriendsgroup.com is where we have all of our radio shows available uh, for you. You can join the organization. Uh, it's open both to men and women for our audio license and uh, we are going to be launching the game changer network uh, here in a couple of months so stay tuned and thanks for joining us today you've been listening to the game changer ideas inspiration innovation with chickie fitzgerald
social media and marketing. And our guest will be Barbara Cave Hendricks. 